Elisa Hoover is going to do this morning's scripture reading. But not just yet, because we have to say a word about the scripture text that she's going to read. She's going to read for us from Romans chapter 13. So um, this is a book of scripture written by the Apostle Paul, given to us, given to him through the Holy Spirit, to a church that was very diverse and divided. We're going to hear next week about why that church was divided and some of the ways that, that the gospel shapes us when we're encountering division. But uh, for 13, chap- 12 chapters, uh, the Apostle Paul has been writing about the gospel to this diverse and divided church. The good news that Jesus has come into this world to restore peace, peace between us and God. Peace between us and one another. Peace, ultimately, Romans chapter 8 says, peace in all of creation. It's good news about what Jesus has come to do. And in chapter 12, uh, Paul begins to talk about the response that that good news produces in the way that we live. And he talks first and foremost about relationships, relationships of love and service and forgiveness. And then... In the middle of that conversation about relationships, he talks about another kind of relationship in Romans chapter 13. What is the relationship between the person who believes in Jesus and government authorities? So in our series about gospel and government, what better place to go than the beginning of Romans chapter 13? Let's hear what hope the gospel has. Wait, 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 wait a second, wait a second. Did something go wrong here? The church at Rome was diverse and divided, and the Apostle Paul decided to write about politics and government. Isn't that like throwing gasoline on a fire? Is there something strange about that? No, there's something unique about the power of the gospel that can take a topic that normally would create further division and actually cause us to respond with love instead. So as you listen to the scripture reading, hear not only what is true about government in our world, but let's listen to see how the Lord is speaking to us about the gospel, good news about peace from Jesus can change us and our world. So, now, Elisa's going to read for us from Romans 13. This morning's scripture reading is from Romans 13, verses 1 through 5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Quote for you today from one of my favorite people, 
Jason Kang, one of our elders here at Intown Community Church. Jason is uh, taking a class at Covenant Seminary right now, and as part of that uh, class, he had to speak about his work as a lawyer and his vision for uh, applying the good news of the gospel to the work that he does. And as part of that, he was thinking about how our culture views elected officials. And Jason has uh, opportunity in his work to, to interact with elected officials at the county and state levels. But what he says is true at every level, that we tend to take extreme views of elected officials. Jason is wise to remind us that our governing authorities are not gods and they aren't devils. They're not deities and they're not demons. We don't worship them, but we also shouldn't dehumanize them and look at them as somehow less than human. Jason reminds us that that is the tendency of the fallen human heart, is to look at leaders and authorities over us in one of these extreme ways. Either these are gods whom we worship because they can do no wrong, or they are devils, and any attack we desire to make on them or their decisions is justified. Well, it doesn't take much imagination to move from that way of thinking about elected officials to apply it to our neighbors, right? Um, one of my former students, Sam Haste, is a pastor in Indiana, and he had this to say in a recent article about a ministry of his church. Almost 90% of Republicans say that Democrats are brainwashed and hateful. Almost 90% of Republicans say that Democrats are brainwashed and hateful. And the numbers are even higher the other way around. If you ask people who self-identify as Republicans to describe Democrats, would you say they're hateful and brainwashed? 90% would say yes. The number is even higher when you ask self-identified Democrats what they think of Republicans. It's, it's not just our officials that we tend to plug into one of these categories. Either they're demons or they're deities. When we look at our neighbors, we tend to say, either you're my ally or you're my enemy. And if you're my ally, then you can do no wrong. And if you're my enemy, then any attack I want to make on you is justified. And you see just how this tendency, this mentality is going to create a vicious cycle of division. Does the gospel offer us any hope to break that cycle? Let's see what God has to say. Now, I have to tell you that... Um, one of the joys of being a pastor is that you get to study the scriptures and you find like millions of, of angles on any given scripture text. It's like it's this beautiful diamond and you could, you could turn any facet toward the light and see glorious rainbows shoot out of it in every direction. And you can't hold every facet to the light in any given sermon. So, we're going to turn a particular facet of this scripture text toward the light today using the categories that Jason has given us. Can't say everything that we might want to say from Romans 13. Can't say everything about politics or political philosophy or how theology intersects with politics. 
But we can say these things today. The first thing I want to say is this. Governing authorities aren't devils. Right? That it's, it's, it's not right for those who believe in Jesus to lean into thinking about politics and government with an attitude that says any attack I want to make is justified because you are my enemy and the enemy of my God. Listen to what the Scriptures say. This is not just the authority of the Apostle Paul. Right? This, this is given to a spokesman of Jesus by the Holy Spirit to say to us, be subject to governing authorities. That is said in verse 1. It's repeated again toward the end of our text. Verse 5, one must be in subjection. Now, if, if governing authorities were devils, then the Holy Spirit would, say, would be saying to us, run away, run away, resist, don't have anything to do with this. If they tell you one thing, do the opposite. Do you ever play that game when you were a kid? I used to sometimes. I didn't know much about God. I didn't know much about spiritual stuff, but I kind of played this fun game like what if, what if the devil was in charge of the world and he told you to do something? That would mean doing something good is disobeying what he says, right? If the devil was in charge and he said jump, then you shouldn't jump because it would be bad to do what he says. Well, here, here's the Holy Spirit saying, Government authorities aren't like that. Don't, don't do the opposite of what they say. Because they are God's agent in this world. Now, verse 4 uses the word servant in the ESV translation. The governing authority is God's servant for your good. Uh, the word translated servant there. Sounds like a metaphor, um, like, you know, sort of God has a household and the, and the government officials are his servants. This is not a metaphor. There's no other household metaphor language anywhere here. This word should be translated agent in this context. Governments are established as God's agents to do what God desires to be done in this world. Now, let me take a moment and say... This is a very general statement, right? Romans 13, 1 through 7, dealing with government authorities is about two paragraphs in length. You can't say everything that you want to say about every scenario in two paragraphs, right? So this is the general statement. It, reading this text doesn't tell us that God approves of every individual leader in the world. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that God approves of every law that's passed by every government in the world. It does not tell us that God approves of every act undertaken to enforce those laws. Right? This is a general statement. There's plenty of evidence in Scripture. God's prophets speaking out against abusive, tyrannical governments. There's these two heroic women living in Egypt named Shifra and Puah. When Pharaoh says, kill all the babies, the baby boys, when they're born, these women say, okay, we'll do what you say. And then they go away and they're like, no, you can't murder babies. We're going to do what God tells us to do. So this notion of resisting 
evil and unjust laws, evil and unjust authorities is also biblical. But the general statement made here is about common grace. We talked last time uh, from the Gospels what Jesus has to say uh, about government and politics, that, that uh, this politics is a common grace gift meant to do something good for everyone in the world, whether just like rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, Jesus says. So uh, a good government should bring well, verse 4 says, he is God's agent for your good. So the general common grace principle is this, that God works his purposes for promoting peace in our world through human authorities who protect those who do good and who punish those who do wrong. If we read our text again, that's what it says over and over again. Verse 3, rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Anybody who's rightly exercising the, God, the, the, the authority that God has given them is not out to punish those who do good. But, so uh, the verse goes on to say, if, if, if you don't want to be afraid of the one in authority, then do what's good. You know, receive his approval. For he is God's servant, God's agent, instrument for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid. Okay, that's how it's meant to be. That's the common grace principle. This morning I was listening to an interview on NPR with several uncommitted voters, people who have not yet made up their mind about the upcoming presidential election. Who are we going to vote for? Eh, not quite sure. Leaning this direction, but here are the reasons why I'm really not comfortable casting my vote that way. Uh, if I go the other way, I've got big problems that way too. I'm still on the fence. I don't quite know what to do. Um, these were uh, young people in their 20s and 30s scattered across the U.S., four different kind of representative, undecided voters, and one of them said, I really just want a lawful, peaceful life. I, I, if we could unpack that statement, right? I, I want to live in a place where the laws are just, and I want to live in a place where there's peace. And... Um, this was from a person who lives in San Francisco, an African-American voter who's as yet undecided about how they're going to vote in the upcoming election. That's a great brief summary of, of what God is saying to us here in Romans 13. Everybody wants a lawful, peaceful life, a place to live in peace. <laughs> And a place where you don't have to constantly be afraid of being punished for no good reason. Um, that's what people want. And, and so God gives us that gift. Right? That's, that's what our text is telling us. That this is God's idea. That there would be a lawful, peaceful life for those who desire it. And so he establishes this concept of government authority. Now, every government authority on earth is led by human beings who are imperfect. And so the reality is that sometimes these purposes are reversed. And sometimes government authorities punish those who do good, punish those who are innocent. 
and sometimes government authorities approve of those who are doing evil. It should not be that way. If you'll notice, that scenario is not considered in this text. Again, this is the two-paragraph version. It's not considering every scenario. This is how it's meant to be. When human rulers, according to this common grace principle, are getting it right, then under God, they would protect those who do good, those who are innocent, and they would punish those who are trying to harm those who are innocent. They would punish the evildoer, but sometimes, as we know all too well in our world, those get reversed. Sometimes that's through an honest mistake. Sometimes it's not honest mistake. Sometimes it's intentional. Nazi Germany, great example of where government authorities intentionally say, we're going to punish people who have done no wrong simply because of their religion. Jim Crow laws in the American South, another example of government leaders saying, we are intentionally going to make life miserable for people who have done no wrong simply because of their race, their skin color. Sometimes human leaders make mistakes that are honest and unintentional, but sometimes human governments make those mistakes intentionally. Do you think the readers of Romans 13 understood that? I'm sure they did. You know why? The gospel that fills up chapters 1 through 11 of this book is good news about Jesus Christ who was crucified on a Roman cross. Every Christian is always constantly aware. We have the cross as a solemn reminder that governments do get it wrong and sometimes it's on purpose. Sometimes government officials like Pilate hear Jesus' testimony and say, I don't see any reason you should be put to death, but I want my soldiers to kill you anyway. Christians of all people should continually be soberly aware that we live in a broken and fallen world and that God's common grace intention is not always the experience of living under human government authorities. Well, the good news of Romans 13 is that authorities are accountable to God because they are His agents, right? So there's nothing in this text that says government authorities can do no wrong. Government authorities are always right. Whatever they say is what God intended No, it goes the other way around. They're accountable to God. If they're treating evil as good, they have to answer to God for that. Now or one day in judgment. If they're treating evil as good, they will have to answer to God for that. But the same principle that makes them accountable to God also says to us, they aren't devils. The concept of human authorities ruling over us so that all people, whether people of faith or not, can have peace and enjoy that lawful, peaceful life. That's God's common grace purpose. These are God's agents meant to use their authority for purposes that are consistent with 
his vision for peace in the world. We can't demonize government officials and write them all off as enemies, right? And here's one of the reasons we can't do that. If we do that, if we start to treat leaders as, as less than human, then it becomes very easy to say everyone who supports this government is less than human. Everyone who supports that leader is less than human, and I'm justified in attacking them in any way that I please. Everybody who obeys these laws is less than human. Everybody who's a citizen of that country is less than human. Everybody who's a member of that political party is less than human. Now, will there be some political parties that are so extreme and out there that we would want to resist them with all our might? Yes. Yeah. Are there going to be some laws that we would say, if you obey that law, you're actually bringing less peace into the world. You're you're creating more injustice. Yes. But what we can't do as believers in Jesus is to simply say, those with whom we disagree are demonic. Those with whom we disagree are less than human. And we are justified in any manner of attack. The gospel creates a better way. Governing authorities aren't devils. They're also not gods. Now, to you and me, that sounds like, well, of course, who would have ever been stupid enough to say that government, government authorities are gods? Well, actually, if you lived in Rome in the first century and you were reading, hearing this letter read out loud in worship for the first time, your ears are perking up because your government was telling you that your emperor was a god. The emperor cult literally said Caesar is a god, and here comes the Holy Spirit saying, no, Caesar is God's agent. Caesar is God's errand boy. Caesar is in authority, but he is under God's authority, a higher, greater authority. Your leaders are not gods, even if they think that they are, even if they want you to think that they are. They are not. Our leaders, government officials, do not have freedom to arbitrarily decide what's good and what's evil. They don't have freedom to arbitrarily decide whose life should be happy and whose life should be miserable. They don't have that freedom. They aren't gods. They are under God's authority. That's what our text says over and over and over again. There is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. That doesn't mean they have license to do whatever they please. It means just the opposite. It means they are answerable to God. There's another common grace principle here. Human authorities know enough of God's moral standards to rule wisely and well. That's the assumption behind this whole text. That, hey, if an apostle of Jesus is going to tell you that government authorities were put in place by God in order to establish peace, 
justice. Then, then the assumption is that they can know enough of what is really peace and what is really justice to help lead their citizens in that direction. Now, this makes sense if you read the whole of Romans. Back in Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has told us that even those who don't know anything about God from the Scriptures still have God's law written on their heart. So that Paul can say, even about a Caesar who thinks he's a god, he knows enough of God's real moral standards to know the difference between good and evil. Even Caesar knows when he's pointing in the direction of injustice and when he's not. So, by God's common grace, we understand that even government officials that we may think are so corrupt and so far gone that they could never do any good, well, in their conscience, they still know what's good and what's evil. They're answerable to God. They themselves are not gods. One of the ways we know that is if we start reading at the other end, look at the first few verses of the book of Romans, the first seven verses of this book mention seven times that Jesus is the supreme king. Four times in those first seven verses, Jesus is called the Lord. Two times, now I got it wrong, he's referred to as Christ. Two times he's called the Lord, and one time he's called the son of David, the great king of Israel. Seven times, Jesus is the supreme king. He is the only one who has ever come to this earth who is a God. So your government leaders are not gods. Don't worship them. Don't treat them as though they can do no wrong. And this is where Romans 13 intersects with the way politics is done in our world right now today. Because here is how most of our political parties work right now. A British ethicist named James Mumford talks about what he calls package deal ethics. If you recently read Tim Keller's article in the New York Times about uh, how Christians fit into a two-party political system, and his answer is Christians don't fit into that system, he mentioned James Mumford and this concept of package deal ethics that essentially says we're creating a platform of positions and you have to endorse all of them as right. In other words, the party can do no wrong. If you agree with us at one point, you better agree with us at every point. If you agree with us on this issue, then you better say we're right on every issue. That, the kind of thinking that's forcing is, well, this party can do no wrong. And if I say, well, I agree with them on these three things but not this one, then I get just laughed out of town or ridden out on a rail because the party is actually being asked to be treated like a god who can do no wrong. I'm getting it all right all the time. You can't say anything critical. 
If you're going to endorse the candidate, you've got to endorse everything about the candidate, everything the candidate ever did or ever said. And so even the most cockamamie thing the candidate said, you have to somehow explain it away as, oh, that was a really wise thing to say in that moment, or really it wasn't that bad, or really the people who are reacting to it are over-responding. And it goes that way for every candidate across any party because the parties are asking to be treated like they can do no wrong. As Christians, we cannot go along with that. So I'm just going to say to you, watch out for idolatry. Watch out for those who ask you to wrap up your identity in your vote. Voting, voting should be seen, I think, as a way of saying, I believe that this is a wise way to pursue God's common grace goals of, of appointing leaders who would give us that lawful, peaceful life. Voting now seems to be becoming something different. It's a way of me saying everything I am, everything I value. It's a way of me wrapping up all of my passions into one act. And for a Christian, that becomes very dangerous because it sounds a bit like we're asked, being asked to declare which God we belong to. When you go in and press the button, it used to be pulling a lever, right? Or poking a chad. And now with electronic voting, it tends to become tapping a screen, not nearly as dramatic as pulling the lever. But when you pull the lever, when you press the chad, when you hit the button, you're, you're saying which God you belong to. You're saying everybody who's, who cast their vote the same way as me, they're my allies. And everybody who didn't, they're my enemies. And the party I'm voting for, they can do no wrong. We worship the same God. And as Christians, we have a totally different approach. We're saying, wait a minute. When I was baptized, that was Jesus voting for me. <laughs> that was him pulling the lever and saying, you belong to me. And I belong to you. And that's your identity. And when you vote, be responsible about it and, and let Scripture inform you and, and do what you think is going to move by God's common grace, this world in the direction of peace and justice. Yes, do those things. Those things matter immensely. That's why Jesus died to establish peace and to bring about justice. That's never your identity. So even if you get it wrong and 12 months later you regret voting the way you did, it doesn't crush your soul. It's not your identity. It's serious, sobering. But there's a third way for believers in Jesus. The gospel creates a third way. The gospel allows us to honor government authorities. That's verse 7 of chapter 13, honor Give honor to whom honor is due. Even authorities that don't share my faith as a believer in Jesus, I can give them honor if it is due. Love neighbors who may not share my faith, may not share my values, may not share my politics. Chapter 13 goes on to talk about loving neighbors and said love does no wrong to its neighbor. 
The gospel creates a way for us to embrace fellow Christians who do share my faith. They do share our values because we belong to Jesus. But they still may not share all of our political judgments. And we can embrace and love one another. How does the gospel do that? Rather than creating this world in which we've divided everybody up into deities or demons and allies or enemies, instead we learn to embrace people that may not think the same in the way that we do about all things political. The gospel does that by turning our focus away from the perfections of human beings. We're not, we're not counting on some human group or leader to get things just right and to have it all figured out. We're turning our gaze away from human perfections and toward the perfections of Christ. And we're turning our focus away from human failings. And we're saying, you know what? Christ came to redeem people who are failures. Failures at morality. Failures at spirituality. Failures at honoring God. And Jesus came to do something about that. So our focus doesn't become, let me point out everything that's wrong with this person, that person, this candidate, this party. We turn our focus to Christ and we say, you know what Christ came to do? He came to supply the kind of perfection that no human authority ever can. So I'm not waiting for the perfect candidate or party or policy to come along because I know perfection is already secured in Christ. I take those issues seriously. I really want peace. I really want justice. God's common grace is a big deal. But it's not the biggest deal. It's not the perfect deal. Jesus came to supply perfection. Jesus came to redeem us from our failures. We fail by following leaders when we shouldn't. And we fail by resisting leaders when we should follow them. We fail in both of those ways, sometimes by rebellion, sometimes by complacency. And Jesus came to redeem us from all of that. So I do not have to make the case to you that I've always gotten it right politically, that all of my views are perfect. I'm free now to say, you know what? If everything about me was perfect, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. Romans could be five verses long. There is no Jesus, therefore obey Caesar. Ah, really short book of the Bible. But there had to be a Jesus because there was a me in the world. And there's enough wickedness in me to destroy this whole planet. So my vote is not going to repair what is wrong with all of you because nothing is wrong with me. A Christian never views it that way. Jesus came to bear the eternal punishment that government justice can only anticipate. When governments get justice right and punish wickedness, that's only an anticipation of a greater day of judgment that is coming, and Jesus absorbed all of that for his people. And when, when governments get peace right, that only approximates the eternal peace that Jesus came to secure. So is it a big deal that governments get justice and peace right? Yes, it is. But in the end, 
Jesus has secured something greater, and he came to do it all, as Tim Keller says, not with a sword, but with nails in his hands. If you read that article about how Christians fit into the two-party system, you remember the answer is we don't. That, that historic Christian positions on social issues don't line up, Keller's words, with contemporary political alignments. He gives some examples. He says, hey, Christians should be committed to racial justice and to the poor, and that sounds like a liberal, left-leaning kind of view. But at the same time, Christians should be uh, committed to a, a view of sexuality and, and views with respect to human life and, and abortion that, that seem very right-leaning and conservative. And we don't fit in the paradigm that puts those two at odds with each other. So what do we do? Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. And Keller says, think of how he rescued us, not with a sword, but with nails in his hands. And so we say to one another, we say to our neighbors, I'm not going to treat you like a God because the nails in Jesus' hands remind me he is the only one worthy of my worship. We say to one another, we say to our neighbors, I'm not going to treat you like a demon. I'm not going to treat you like less than human, even if you disagree with me, because the nails in Jesus' hands remind me that I am a sinner and that Jesus came to redeem sinners. That should create a humility in me that would never look down on somebody else as less than human. And we say to one another and we say to our neighbors, I want to live at peace with you. Even if we are on opposite sides of political issues. Because I remember that when I was opposed to God, he did not attack me. He sent his son to make peace with me. Jesus came to do all of this work not with a sword, but with nails in his hands. That's what changes us. So that instead of being gasoline thrown on a fire, these words about God's common grace actually bring us to a place of healing and love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we still have many questions Everybody in the room wants to say, but, 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 <laughs> even me, <laughs> I probably disagree with several of the things I said this morning. <laughs> Seriously, Jesus, we need your wisdom, and we pray that you would do your good work, and that you would teach us the difference between our identity in you and our involvement as citizens, and may the one inform the other not substitute for. We don't want our faith to say, well, we're going to back out as citizens, and we don't want our citizenship to replace our faith. We need wisdom from you, Jesus, to learn. And we pray that you would change us, that you would make us more like yourself. 
We pray this for the good of the world, for those common grace purposes that you have for us. Amen.